I've entitled this morning's message Six Ways We See Jesus in Hebrews, specifically in our passage, verses 5 through 13. We took time last week to dive into verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, which really are a... Uh, not an interruption by any means, but they are a thought, literary change of thought, if you will, for the writer of Hebrews, because prior to verse 1 of chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews was establishing again the superiority of Jesus Christ over the prophets and, even more specifically, over angels. And where the writer of Hebrews left off in his discourse about the superiority of Christ over angels was in verse 14 of chapter 1. I'll draw your attention there. Where he said, Are they not, they being angels, all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? There's a question mark after the end of that. Then he very aptly got into the subject that we dealt with last week about the the danger of drifting. It is the first of seven great warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. The dangers of drifting if we neglect so great a salvation. But the writer picks up his topic again about the superiority of Christ right here in our text this morning by way of the first word of verse 5 of chapter 2. Let me draw your attention there. The word is for. It is a connecting word that connects us to verse 14 of chapter 2, of chapter 1 rather, that are not angels all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Verse 5 of chapter 2 For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. And so this morning we're going to take a look at six ways in which Jesus is seen throughout the text and can be seen not only in the text but the reason for the text is that there is a world present and a world yet to come where Jesus is able to be seen and should be looked upon. And I'd like to share those things with you this morning in the hopes that after we've clearly seen these six ways in which we see Jesus, that you and I will clearly see him more intimately, more applicably, more personally in each of our lives. So with that, I'll begin by the obvious, which the first way in which we see Jesus in this text, there in verse 5, has to do as the one who will reign in the world to come. Notice, the author says, he, meaning God the Father, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. 
The world to come is spoken of often throughout the book of Hebrews. We have the powers of the ages to come in chapter 6, verse 5. We have the law, which was a shadow of good things to come in chapter 10, verse 1. Andrew Murray put it this way. He said that the world to which Psalm 8, which is quoted here in this passage, the world to which Hebrews looks forward to in this verse is the kingdom of the Messiah, the king and his kingdom upon the earth. I speak of, and it speaks of, the millennial reign of Christ. The thousand year reign of Jesus upon the earth. It is true that there are some who believe we are there that we are living in the millennial reign of Christ. If Jesus has come and this is his reign, how sad would that be? When in fact it is not. We're still looking forward. I am, I hope you are, to that day and time he promised, I, I go to prepare a place for you that when I come again, and we are told in several places in the book of Revelation about a time in which Jesus will reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or the image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads, or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I hope that's not new news to you. Verse 6 of the same chapter of Revelation states this way, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The, emph the emphasis there is the one who is blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection that the second death has no power on. It's been put this way. Be born once, you die twice. You die a physical death, and then you die again a spiritual death, and the second death, spending eternity, eternity, beloved, apart from the living God. Born twice, you die once. You die one physical death, and the second death has no power over you. Are you born again this morning? You who are watching at home, can you honestly say, I have been born again? I'm not asking you if you're a Christian. I'm asking you if you're born again. Has the living Christ taken up residence in your heart? Is he governing and guiding and directing your thoughts, your words, your actions? Can you sense the spirit of God alive in you? You might say, well, yeah, I remember making a prayer when I was in Sunday school, third grade or fifth grade. Or I'm not talking about a prayer you might have made. Are you living for Christ today? That's the question. Because the time is coming when he will reign for a thousand years on this earth. 
And if you're born again, you and I will reign with him. I look forward to that. Secondly, we see Jesus not only as the one who will reign in the world to come, but we see him as the son of man made a little lower than the angels. We'll pick it up in verse 6. But one testifies in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things under subjection under his feet. We'll stop there. It is a course, again, the writer of Hebrews quoting what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 8. That would have been the patriarch David. And what is true for us this morning as we look at this text is that David was speaking primarily of man. David was looking out at the glories of the earth and realizing that the Father God had created mankind and, and placed mankind uh, over the earth, to rule in the earth. And so David, in, in his looking, you know, when I, when I consider the heavens, looking up at the stars and saying, what am I that you are mindful of me? Have you ever looked up at the expanse in space and out on a dark night, look at the multitude of the Milky Way and you can almost begin to get a perspective of how small and tiny the earth is in comparison to the universe, let alone the universes. Years ago, one of our favorite uh, object lessons with our grandchildren while we would camp after vacation Bible school was to uh, one night during our camp week, we would take the flashlight and we'd say, okay, let's all go to the rock. And we would climb up this small boulder and each settle down and look straight up to the sky and speak the words of Psalm 8 to them to help them understand that though in some ways we are tiny and small, that God is mindful of us. And in fact, he cares for us. He cares for you and he cares for me. And in his creation of mankind, he set mankind over earth, as David put it in Psalm 8, uh, gave him dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all the beasts of the field. So in this phrase, we see Jesus made a little slow, uh, lower than the angels. There's an important grammatical note. Very important grammatical note. In the original language, the phrase lower than is actually a phrase that means for a little while. Made lower than the angels for a little while. And 
the question could be asked, well, how was Jesus made lower than the angels? For a little while, of course. Three ways. He became mankind. He became human flesh. God incarnate. Fully God and yet fully man. We are told in uh, John's gospel that when he was weary, he went to Jacob's well and needed a drink. He experienced fatigue. We're told in Mark's gospel that he was asleep in the stern of the boat. He knew what it was like to just lay his head down. What a long day. I'm exhausted. Secondly, he was created lower than the angels in that he tasted death. Verse 9 of this chapter we're studying says he tasted death for everyone. Angels do not taste death. There will come a time when those who fell from heaven and followed Lucifer and are what are called uh, demonic spirits will be cast into the bottomless pit along with Lucifer. But Jesus tasted death. And thirdly, we know that the way in which he was made lower than the angels was he became subject to temptation. Matthew 4, the gospel records for us those ways in which after coming out of the Jordan River, he was immediately thrusted into the wilderness and the devil came to him, tempting him to which he did not succumb. So he fully identified with man. And David, though speaking of you and I, mankind, the Holy Spirit is actually referencing, it's a messianic psalm. Because it's mentioned again over in verse 9 when we get there. And you and I, I mean, perhaps you don't, but I, this morning, I, I'm reminded, I it's so amazing to wrap our mind around the truth of 1 Timothy 3.16 that says without controversy. In other words, without debate. There's no way you can get in and just, you know, rationally argue this thing to a point where you fully understand it. That without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, preached among Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up to glory. Without controversy, it's a great mystery. So we see him made a little lower than the angels. The third way in which we see Jesus in our text and throughout the way in which the New Testament wants us to see him, is crowned with glory and honor. I read, moving on in verse 7 and into verse 8, you have made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then the writer, before he is going to mention crowned with glory and honor again, takes a moment to paint a real picture. In the latter portion of verse 8, he says, For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is 
not put under him, small m, speaking of man, but now, in other words, at this moment, at the moment of this writing, at the moment of the inception of the New Testament, truth of God, right now we do not yet see all things put under him. Yes, there's a certain amount of rule and authority that mankind has over the earth, but certainly not everything is under our control. Otherwise, why would there be the chaos that you and I are trying to navigate our lives through? Why was the church shut down for two years or tried to be shut down? Why do we see the ongoing innocent killing of babies in our country? Why do we see a government turned upside down where they say what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right? We are living in strange times. And we do not yet see all things put under our control. They're not. But we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. As it says there in verse 9, he says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. He picks up the thought from verse 8 and verse 7. Made a little lower than the angels for a little while for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. As I said, this phrase speaks in two ways. The phrase of created a little lower than the angels speaks of two ways, one of mankind, but the second of Jesus. Because in verse 7, if you'll notice, the personal pronoun in verse 7, when he says you, that's capital Y, speaking of God the Father, made him lowercase h, that speaks of mankind. When you move over to verse 9, and the writer now, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, but we see Jesus, personal pronoun, capital J, who was made a little lower than the angels, doesn't use the word him, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that who? What's the word? He. Capital, he. In that verse begins with Jesus. He is now speaking of Jesus, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It's Jesus that was crowned with glory and honor. It's Jesus that was the one who, as Paul writing to the Philippians said, came in the form, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2, God has highly exalted him, crowned him with glory and honor. 
Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and those who are under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is, I, I said when we started this book, hold on to your hat. This is a deep dive into the theological truths of who our Savior is. And this, it doesn't go uh, past the gospel. It includes the gospel message and brings clarity, the importance of Hebrews, in knowing that God has spoken and he's speaking through his Son. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of his humility in coming to the cross. A fourth way in which Jesus is to be seen, not only in our text, but in reality, comes to us in verse 10. If you want to read it with me, it says this, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things. Now notice how the... uh, the personal pronoun has changed. The him for whom all things and by whom are all things. Who's the him? Jesus. In bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The fourth way in which we see Jesus is as the captain of their salvation or ours the captain of our salvation. And notice what this captain's goal is. It is bringing many sons to glory. The word captain there is an important word. It means originator, founder, leader, chief, prince. And the goal of this leader, this founder, is to not just sit in some hierarchy place, but he's longing to bring many sons to glory. That's one of the reasons we reach out each summer with Vacation Bible School, hoping to capture capture the soul of children. And in the process, guess what happens? Many of you in this church jump in and start assisting and helping and and building and crafting and, and the body of Christ begins working together, each joint supplying. And we get to work out our kinks with one another. You know, someone once said, some of the hardest work to do is to work alongside your brother or sister in Christ. Why? Because they're different. And you might find a conflict. And oh my goodness, what are you going to do? If you're in conflict with a brother or sister, would you turn and go the other way? They offended me. I offended them. Oh, let's just not talk to one another. Or would you, would to God that we 
according to the gospel tells us, when you find yourself at Calvary Chapel Valley Springs on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or any other time, and you're worshiping the Lord, and it's beautiful, and he's beautiful, and I'm beautiful, and oh, I remember, oh, yeah, there's this conflict between my brother or my sister. And what does the scripture say? Leave your gift at the altar. Stop worshiping. Red light, red light, red light, flash. And go, leave, and seek to be reconciled to your brother or your sister. Well, what, do you, what do you mean, Pastor Art? Well, that means that's the, that's the nitty-gritty work of sitting down and having an, a kneecap-to-kneecap, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation about your differences. And being willing to recognize that you may have said something, done something, acted in a way that offended your brother or your sister. And that brother, that sister being willing to listen and, and go, oh my goodness, I hear, I hear repentance and I hear an apology. And, and that brother, that sister being willing to go, oh, well, yes, I, I completely forgive you. Let's, let's walk in unity with one another. that happen in your lives? I hope so. Because that's where true growth and maturity and strength for us as, as men and women, young people in the body of Christ, that's where, that's where it really begins to take. And others will look and they will go, oh my goodness, they will know that you are my disciple by your love one for another. And the captain of our salvation smiles. And he says, that's what I'm trying to do is bring many sons to glory. Saved from what, you might ask? Well, a couple of verses. Luke 171 says, saved from our enemies and and the hands of those who hate us. Acts chapter 2, verse 40 says, to be saved from this perverse generation. Romans 5, 9 says, saved from the wrath of God. And so, captain, right? Definition, originator, founder, leader. And so the... A question to wrap ourselves around this morning is, is, well, was it God's plan to save mankind or was it Jesus' plan to save mankind? Answer, yes. Right? Because Because Jesus is God incarnate. And so he rightfully takes the place of originator, founder, leader though. Leading the way in salvation. 
How did that take place? Well, I would say, more than likely, the epic, classic record that we have of his conversation with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. When in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he cried out, knowing that Calvary was coming, knowing that the cross was coming, having grown up in a Roman environment, having more than likely witnessed what crucifixion is, knowing that he is about to go to the cross. We're told that he wept, he, he prayed and sweated as it were drops of blood. And in his conversation with his heavenly father, he says, Father, if it be your will, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he waited for the Father's answer. And what was the Father's answer? There was no other way to lead the way in the salvation of all mankind that would no longer be dependent upon man and his obedience to a system of law and regulation and rule, but now it was dependent solely upon the faithfulness of the Son of God and man's simple obedience to believe in the efficiency of his blood and the quality of his sacrifice. Amen? And so... The father's answer was, there is no other way. And to the cross, he went. So yes, we see him as the captain of our salvation, leading the way to salvation. But how did that flesh itself out? In the fifth way in which we see Jesus, who was made perfect, right there, verse 10 at the end, made perfect through sufferings. Now, if you're taking note this morning, you might want to notice that there's an S at the end of the word suffering. It was plural. Made perfect through sufferings, plural. Robertson, in his word picture from the New Testament, says this, and I thought it was powerful. If one recoils at the idea of God making Christ perfect, bear in mind it is the humanity of Jesus that is under discussion here. He was, he was flawless. He was without sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, the scripture tells us. So he was without sin. He he was already perfect in that sense that you and I might think of the word perfection or perfect. But the grammar also brings out to us uh, a way in which this word made perfect through sufferings it is. It is in the aorist infinitive, which means it's an action that has already been accomplished. 
It's being written down for our understanding, but it has already been accomplished. And we say, when and where were the sufferings that took place that made the humanity of our Savior perfect? And we'll get to that word in just a minute. Wouldn't we agree that more than likely from the moment of the interactions there in the garden, of course, he was rejected, came into his own, his own received him not. And he was rejected. And that would have been suffering, of course, to some degree. Maybe you and I as Christians today, as things get stranger and stranger in this world, you know, you will be hated. The closer you hold on to Christ and the truth of Scripture, you will be hated in this world. You will not be understood in this world. And Jesus promised a blessing. Luke chapter 6, verse 22, he said, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, and when they revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. If someone is giving you a cold shoulder because you're holding close and deep to your convictions about the truth of Scripture, hey, count it as a blessing. I've had to stand in some very difficult situations where the one in which you must turn from wants to exclude you because of your faith. But what you and I both need to take note of as we wind this down this morning is the word perfect. Now, if you're taking note, it's important to know what that word is and what it means. It is the Greek word teeleo, which actually means ready, complete. He was made complete as the Son of Man, of God incarnate, fully God, yet fully man. He was made complete through sufferings. And... The same is true of you and I. You and I don't get a pass. Did you want a pass this morning? Can I please have a pass? No suffering, God. He says, I'm sorry. Do you want to grow? Do you want to mature? Would you like to go beyond the crib? Would you like to go beyond being a toddler? An infant in Christ? Do do you always want to just be a babe? ready to drink the milk of the word of God? Don't you want the meat of scripture? And you say, yes, I do. And he says, okay, then the way I'm going to grow you in this life is through sufferings. And I will make you complete in those sufferings. What are your sufferings this morning? What things hurt? Remember that as a a born-again Christian, that's the way God matures us. As his word is deposited and it's applied to the circumstance of hardships in life, 
It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect or complete. Psalm 18.32. Psalm 138.7 and 8, one of my favorites. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. He will complete it. Are you concerned about anything this morning? If you are not, you're in trouble. If you are, God is going to complete it. Colossians 1.28, him we preach, warning every man. And this is, this is our calling card for Calvary Chapel Valley Springs. Him we preach, warning every man, not, not church growth systems, not, you know, uh, the way to have fun as a Christian is to do this and do that. Hey, I'm not against uh, doing things together, but the purpose of this ministry, standing on this corner, in this city, in this county, at this moment, is to preach Christ. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ. And if you're concerned, like I do at times become very concerned about how and when, Lord, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, we see Jesus as being made perfect through sufferings and our model for being made complete ourselves. Lastly, this morning, we'll close it up. Sixth way in which we see Jesus is the one who is sanctifying those being sanctified. Look with me in closing at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. Can you just hear Jesus t- talking to the Father? No, they're mine. He's mine. You're mine. He's, they're, they're mine. I'm declaring, he's declaring your name to the Father. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praises to you. I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Jesus is the one who sanctifies those being sanctified. Sanctifying the sanctified. And what does that biblical word mean? Every one of you this morning, if you've been walking with the Lord more than a day, how about that? You've been walking with the Lord more than a week, uh, walking with the Lord more than a month, what does sanctified mean? That should be like right here. Ready? Set apart. What does sanctified mean? That's right. And Jesus, the one who is set apart, as it says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, he who sanctified, Jesus was set apart for the work of his Father, So that in him, 
you and I are now set apart for the work of his kingdom. He desires that you and I be set apart and noticeably so in this life. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Later in that same letter, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I don't know how many people you know that maybe think that they are going to heaven or they're on a path to heaven or they they know about God or that they know about being saved or whatever. I don't know how many people you know that claim that. But the truth of scripture is, is that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so then it becomes, well, how does one become righteous? One cannot become righteous through the means of of good works, right deeds, a moral life, a, a clean thinking. None of those things will allow you and I to to knock on heaven's door when we breathe our last breath and say, hey, remember I was pretty good, God, can I get in? And maybe I'm preaching to the choir this morning. Maybe each one of you sitting here knows that already. Maybe you at home already know that already. Then good. So we get in how? By the righteousness of Jesus Christ and our faith in his blood. Because the promise in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and forward says that neither fornicators, are you fornicating this morning? Idolaters, do you have an idol? Nor adulterers, God forbid someone's involved in adultery this morning. Nor homosexuals or sodomites. The large trend in our society towards, you know, gender confusion. Hey, I was reminded yesterday, when a a person is uh, first responders or a doctor, surgeon, when they need to apply their medical knowledge and practice to an individual, one of the first things that must be established is their gender. Are they a male or female? There are not multiple, there's two. And the truth of scripture is that that thinking and that mindset, which is pervasive in our public school systems, especially here in California, someone's saying it's gone national. He goes on to say, nor thieves. You ever stolen anything? Nor covetousness. Oh, ouch. Or you want something that someone else has. Nor drunkards. That would of course mean given constantly to alcohol. Nor revilers. You're just a fighter. Extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, 
Okay, God forbid. I mean, none of us are exempt of the fact that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This passage is a reference to those who habitually return back to that lifestyle. That there is freedom and the deliverance of any one or multiple of those things for the person that will come to Christ and ask God to to deliver them, save them, and forgive them. Clean. God takes a holy uh, chalkboard eraser and goes, clean. But the one who says, no, I can live this way, and I'm all right in the eyes of God. I'm sorry, this says no. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because, as he goes on to say, as he was writing to the Corinthians, and he might as well be writing to the multiple societies in America today, and I'll include me in that society. Don't be too shocked. Horrible guy. Have no right to stand here. And he says, but such were some of you. But such were some of you. And he redeems the moment by saying, but you were washed. Have you been washed this morning? You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of our Lord. If you've been washed this morning, you are sanctified. You've been set apart. And you say, well, there's a whole lot that still needs to be cleaned up And I go, me too. I know the good news is that I have been sanctified. I am being sanctified. And I will be sanctified in an eternal state with the Father and the Son. The moment you came to Christ, he set you apart. The life that you're living now to walk and follow him, he's endeavoring to set you apart. And one day, he will eternally set you apart in heaven with himself. Jesus, the one sanctifying those being sanctified, is how we see him. So, obviously we're out of time. I've gone over this morning, but I'll just wrap it up with we see him as the one who reigns in the world to come, the son of man, fully man yet fully God. He is the one crowned with glory and honor, the captain and founder and leader of our salvation, made perfect or complete through sufferings and sanctifying each one who believes in him, the sanctified. Great passage. We don't see everything under the control, but we can see Jesus. Amen. Let's close with a prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, for your great grace, because each of us is so in need of that. 
And just like the Word has told us that your Father crowned you with honor and glory, we want to bless your name in song this morning as we close. And thank you, Lord, that you've washed us, that you conquered death, that you love us. Lord, thank you for saving us, for giving us. In Jesus' name.